Little Dirk is one of the most notorious rappers in the Chicago drill era of hip-hop music. With almost 5 million followers on Instagram, it's safe to say that Little Dirk has a solid fan base that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Dirk's melodic style of drill music is a big reason why he stood out compared to other Chicago rappers during his rise to stardom. But just like most of the other Chicago rappers, a big part of Lil Durk's appeal was the authenticity of his music. You knew that Lil Durk was rapping about real-life experiences, and not just some make-believe nonsense to sell records. In addition to that, Lil Durk was also respected by a lot of his peers due to his efforts of speaking out against gang violence in Chicago. And the reason why he gained so much respect for that is because Little Dirk actually lived that kind of lifestyle before rapping and wants his fans, or just anyone in general, to know that gang life is not something that you ever want to be a part of. Curious what kind of street antics Little Dirk got into? Well, we have you covered. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Little Dirk. Little Dirk had his first documented arrest in October of 2011. According to multiple reports, Little Dirk was charged with a few different gun charges, with the main one being possession of a firearm with a defaced serial number. A gun charge is no joke in Chicago, so this was a pretty serious first charge, especially with the serial number being scratched off the gun. Having no serial number gives the cops a good reason to think that the weapon is being used for criminal-like reasons. At his sentencing, Lil Durk pled guilty to a reduced charge of aggravated, unauthorized use of a weapon. Lil Durk spent three months in jail and was later released on bond, but was later sent back to serve 87 more days. Even though this was Lil Durk's first conviction, it still made Durk a convicted felon. Lil Durk's next arrest was on June 5th, 2013. According to court records, Lil Durk was hanging around on South Green Street in Chicago when police approached him to investigate a call of a man with a gun. This must have caught Lil Durk off guard because he apparently took a loaded 40 caliber handgun out of his waistband and quickly threw it in his car. Lil Durk obviously wasn't very stealthy when doing this because the police clearly saw Dirk do this, which gave them enough probable cause to search his vehicle. After a quick search, Chicago police arrested little Dirk right on the spot. Dirk's charge was unlawful use of a weapon by a felon. Little Dirk was held on a $100,000 bond and his lawyer would later claim to have nine affidavits from witnesses who can confirm Lil Durk was innocent. One witness even admitted that the gun was his and not Lil Durk's. Durk was released about a month later on July 18, 2013. Lil Durk's next run-in with the law wasn't an arrest, but rather a shootout that took place while he was on tour. Sources say that a shootout happened just hours before Little Dirk's scheduled performance at the Theater of Living Arts in Center City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The shootout left Little Dirk's tour bus damaged by gunfire and also left one man dead. Little Dirk was not arrested or questioned by the police. No other updates were made public on this situation as well. This next incident is just an update from when he was arrested on June 5th, 2013 on felony gun charges. According to court records, Little Dirk was ordered to court on August 19th, 2016, where the judge dropped all of his charges. The judge must have noticed that he was changing his ways and admired that he was speaking out against Chicago gang violence. Shortly after, Little Dirk moved to Atlanta where he became completely focused on music and even claimed to be a studio rat. Little Dirk managed to stay out of trouble for about three years. But it all came to an end after Dirk became a wanted man by the Fulton County Police Department. Multiple reports claim that Little Dirk had a warrant issued for his arrest and planned to charge Little Dirk with criminal intent to commit murder, aggravated assault, possession of a firearm during commission of a felony, 
possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and associating with a criminal street gang to participate in a crime. And here's the kicker. All of these charges stem from the King Vaughn incident that we covered in a video a few days ago. The link to that video will be in the top left corner and in the description below. I highly suggest you check that out to get more details on this situation. Anyways, Duke's Jeep was allegedly the car used in the shooting, and Dirk, Vaughn, and another OTF affiliate, Bezu or Zoo, were all reported to be in the car at the time of the shooting. Since the situation was so serious, Atlanta is charging all of them with the same charges regardless of who actually pulled the trigger. King Vaughn was the first to get arrested, and then it was Zoo, and now all that was left was Lil Dirk. A few days after hearing about the warrants for his arrest, Lil Dirk posted on his Instagram story, turning myself in tomorrow. This was a huge shock to his fans, since nobody expected him to be involved in a shooting, especially after all his success. The next day, Dirk dropped a song called Turn Myself In, and just a few hours later, he actually did turn himself in. Little Dirk is just being discriminated against, or his civil rights are being violated. What is the appropriate vehicle or mechanism for that person to bring his grievance? Well, and specifically when you refer to civil rights violations, and you refer to this uh, phrase earlier, a Bivens action, which is a the equivalent of a civil action in the federal context to contest uh, actions that uh, the inmate believes are unlawful, and it's typically in the context of prejudice, claims of prejudice in the in the prison context, based upon faith, uh, based upon race. Uh, these are typical issues that are brought in a Bivens action, and I did file many of those too through the years. And is am I correct that the appropriate uh, uh, remedy request or request for relief is monetary damages? That's correct. And what about... As opposed, as opposed to the 2241 context, where you're asking for basically what is called injunctive relief, action being taken on behalf of the inmate in favor of the inmate, as opposed to monetary relief. Prior to the passage of the First Step Act, the compassionate relief was limited to being at, at, at the request of the director of the Bureau of Prisons through a series of channels up the chain of command from warden to regional director to director. But the First Step Act changed that. And, and so it's my understanding that a, a, a person, an incarcerated person, can now file his own a request for compassionate release. Could you tell us a little bit about what requirements he must overcome in order to file that motion? Well, unlike the full uh, scope of the administrative remedy process that I just referred to, in the context of the uh, what's called a 3582, uh, which is the statutory number for a compassionate release motion, one must, or the inmate must, first file a request, a formal request to the warden of his prison for compassionate release. And there's certain requirements that one must meet, which typically involves uh, the, uh, in a serving of over 50% of his sentence, uh, being over 60 years old in age, and having what are considered to be serious and potentially life-threatening uh, medical conditions. So it's, it's still a challenging, it's still a challenging um, uh, situation, but one must, before they file their compassionate release motion, both file with the warden and then wait an additional 30 days from a, from a denial by the warden to file the compassionate release motion. I want to say one more thing, Michael. That filing of the compassionate release motion is filed in one's sentencing court as opposed to in the 2241 context in the court, in the district court closest to where the inmate is housed at that time. And that would be the same for a 2255. That is also filed in the sentencing court. Is that correct? That, that is correct. So recently, the coronavirus uh, threat 
has opened the floodgates of filings for 3582s. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience in filing those kinds of motions? A 3582 motion uh, and the challenge of it I'm finding in the COVID context thus far is that the purpose or the primary basis for Congress's enactment of uh, that statute is to focus upon the elderly inmate, as I mentioned, who has significant health issues and has served a significant portion of their sentence. By contrast, what I have found, and, and we're finding this more and more, many of the inmates who have uh, medical uh, conditions that compromise their immune system, which is Attorney General Barr's basic standard for uh, uh, appropriate review of those inmates for release given COVID, many times have just either entered the prison system or have certainly served far less than 50% of their sentence and uh, are, in, are oftentimes a far younger age. So it's very tricky uh, to satisfy what it was the initial uh, purpose and rationale in bringing the compassionate release statute to bear in the context of COVID. There are advantages, though, which I could discuss in a moment about, and from my point of view, still, though, in certain instances in bringing a 3582 compassionate release motion in the context of the COVID issue as compared with the 2241 petition. Although I would say that in this day and age, it's good to exhaust all of your options and file all of them because you are filing in different courts. We have spoken in the past about the urgency of COVID and the fact that people are dying and the, the fact that people in prison cannot practice the guidelines established by the CDC or even by the president. In those types of circumstances, how are there strategies of getting around or at least attempting whether there has been jurisdiction given in this case? So one type of jurisdiction that you're going to learn about is something called diversity. Diversity jurisdiction is a kind of jurisdiction that permits cases to get into federal court if they involve disputes between people from two different states or a state in the District of Columbia or a state in one of the territories. So, to know whether this could go to federal court, we need more information. Where are these people from? Well, let's say this person is from New York, and this person is from Texas. Now we see that we have a dispute between two litigants from two different states. So, this satisfies what we call the diversity of citizenship requirement. So that's one aspect of diversity jurisdiction, is the citizenship. Now I've told you where they are citizens of. What you'll learn in your civil procedure class is how to determine where a litigant is a citizen of. An individual is a citizen of wherever they are domiciled, which is their place of residence, and you'll learn how to determine that. It's not necessarily where they own property. There's rules surrounding where someone is domiciled. You'll talk about that in your civil procedure class. But what if we're talking about entities? The rules are different for entities. Entities like corporations, or you have limited liability companies, you have partnerships. You have unincorporated associations. There are different rules for each of those types of entities as to how you determine where they are citizens of. And for corporations and other entities, they can be citizens of multiple states. So just as an example, corporations are citizens of where they are headquartered and every state where they are incorporated. So you may have multiple states where they will be citizens of, and you would include that in your determination of 
where this plaintiff, for example, if it was a corporation, is a citizen of, and you use those states to do the diversity of citizenship analysis. So that's going to be a big part of what you'll learn under diversity jurisdiction. Now, the mere fact that they are from two different states is necessary, but is not sufficient for there to be diversity jurisdiction. There also has to be the appropriate amount in controversy. The amount in controversy is the dollar amount that must be at stake in the lawsuit. So, if you have a dispute between these two parties from two different states, but it is only for a certain low amount, let's say $5,000, that's going to be too low. Because Congress has said in the diversity statute that the minimum amount in controversy is $75,000. So if the dispute here is between two people for less than seventy-five or equal to $75,000, that is too low. It must exceed $75,000. So, if we put down here that we have a $100,000 dispute for various personal injuries and property damage, we now can say definitively that this dispute would qualify for jurisdiction in federal court because you have a plaintiff from New York, a defendant from Texas, and you have an amount in controversy of $100,000. Now again, as with citizenship, there is complexity to the amount in controversy determination. I had told you that it is $100,000 at stake, but there will be instances where there may be multiple claims that this person has. So they may have $50,000 in property damage, $50,000 in personal injury. Can they add those two together? Or they may have this claim arising out of this car accident, and then they may have an additional claim for another amount. Can they add those two together? So the concept of adding things together to get to the amount of controversy is called aggregation. And there are circumstances where you can and cannot do that Circumstances that you'll cover in your civil procedure course. So for this simple case, the answer is that you could bring this in state court, but you could also bring this in federal court because of the diversity jurisdiction of the federal courts. An additional way to get jurisdiction in federal court is something called federal question jurisdiction. Federal question jurisdiction means that the case arises out of a claim based on federal law. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Nevada has concealed carry reciprocity with about 30 states. This means that if you have a current invalid CCW permit from one of those states, you may lawfully carry a concealed handgun in Nevada. For a list of the states that Nevada has reciprocity with, refer to the description beneath this video. When people with a reciprocal state CCW permit move to Nevada, their out-of-state permits remain valid for only 60 days into their Nevada residency. So new residents should apply for a Nevada CCW permit as soon as possible after moving to avoid a gap in their gun rights. Under NRS 202.350, it is a Category C felony in Nevada to carry a concealed weapon without a current and valid CCW permit. The penalties include one to five years in the Nevada State Prison, and the judge can impose a fine of up to $10,000. But, if you have a current invalid CCW permit and you simply forgot to bring it with you while you're carrying a concealed firearm, then you face only a civil fine of $25. If you've been arrested, call my legal team at 702 Defense. The attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group 
will do everything possible to get your charges reduced or dismissed. I'm here with Michael Becker, one of the top criminal defense lawyers here in Nevada. And Michael, today I want to talk about possession of child pornography. What does Nevada law say about child porn? Well, Nevada has very stringent laws in regard to the possession of child pornography. Uh, if you are found to be in possession of child pornography, you can be sentenced as a felon to between one and six years in prison for each image of child pornography that you possess. And, and what is the definition? I mean, what constitutes child pornography in, in Nevada law? In Nevada, child pornography, pornography is having visual images of children under the age of 16 engaged in sexually provocative uh, activity. So when you say images, that could be video, that could be print images, that could be images on the computer. That is correct. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve children engaging in acts of sex. It could be uh, children in, in sexually provocative positions. Uh, it's something that, that's litigated that you can argue to a jury, this is sexual, this is not sexual. Now, what if it's just, let's say, uh, somebody having images of children that are naked and they're not necessarily, they're not doing anything sexual, it's not sexually provocative stances, but it's just a lot of images of naked children. W would that be, would that constitute child pornography? It would depend on the circumstances. I mean, I think that parents... Uh, take pleasure in photographing their children. A lot of parents um, would take pictures of the ch children naked, pictures of the children in the bathtub, pictures of their children dressing. I mean, they, we all probably enjoy looking at pictures of ourselves as kids. And sometimes we see a picture of ourselves naked and it's clearly not something that's sexually explicit or provocative. It would depend on who possessed the images. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that would largely dictate how a jury would interpret whether they were sexual images or whether they were appropriate images. So it really depends on context then. I mean, if it's parents having images of their children and that's, you know, that's benign, that's, that's appropriate in our culture. But let's say it's some 50-year-old man who has no children and has 500 images of, of kids, you know, of various, you know, children that are naked... And in that context, even if it's not sort of sex, sexually provocative pictures, just the mere naked pictures might be prosecuted? That is correct. And it might also depend, for example, on how the pictures are stored. Uh, a lot of the times when we represent people who are charged with child pornography, there have been search warrants that have been executed, computers seized, and the files are stored someplace on the computer. So, for example, if you had a file that contained pornography and there were pictures of naked children in that same file, one might suggest that the, that the files were stored there because those were your sexually explicit files. So all of the facts and nuances could affect how a prosecutor would view uh, whether or not to, make a, uh, uh, to file charges against someone for possession of child pornography. Let me ask you about the issue of age, because I know the age of consent here in Nevada is 16 for, for having sex, which is different than a lot of states. I mean, in most states, it's actually 18. But you said that the, the sort of age threshold for child pornography is also 16. So, I mean, the definition is the sort of nude, provocative pictures uh, of children under 16, right? That is correct. Now, in Nevada, if the images are of children under 14, the penalties are more severe, but it's still considered child porn if it's 16 or under. Does that mean that you can have child, that you can have pictures of 17-year-olds engaging in sexually explicit acts? Not necessarily, because federal law defines uh, age of majority at 18, so under federal law, pictures of a 17-year-old engaging in sexually explicit activity would still be considered child pornography. 
and you could face federal prosecution for those for possessing those images even if the state chose not to file against you. Now, let me ask you, how is age determined, though? Because I'm assuming a lot of times the police confiscate uh, child pornography, and it's it's not clear. I mean, it's, it's a teenager, but that teenager might be 17, might be 18, might be 15. It's It's sort of ambiguous. How is it determined if they can't really sort of trace the, you know, the, the person who's depicted and and verify that for certain. There are a variety of ways. There have been incidents where law enforcement agents are actually able to investigate and find the person that's depicted in the image. And they've been able actually to age a certain photograph or image. Sometimes federal agents will have... YNW Melly hired the same lawyers that you use for your murder trial. Right. Yeah, I helped him out with that. I, I, I told him who to go get. South Florida rapper did not have much to say, making his first appearance in court after being accused of killing two men he called his friends. Jamel, remember, you don't speak to anyone but me or Mr. Cohen. But I set a bond. It was uh, level one house arrest and the other terms and conditions uh, will be in the order. All right. What is up, everybody? God damn. This is a huge update in the Melly case. While everybody in Florida was out at the beaches, just risking Corona to go to Cheesecake Factory, the judge in the Melly case was on a Zoom call, basically on a Skype, telling YNW Bortland that he was free to go on a $75,000 bond. He got approved. Some people are like, wait, wait, what? He's free to go? Bond on a murder charge in South Florida? That's almost unheard of. The crazy part is the 75 grand, which is super low. Anything less than half a million for first degree murder charge is practically unheard of. And we're hearing words, potentially the trial is set to begin as early as July 2nd. And this could be bigger than the 6-9 trial, honestly. This is not the first death penalty case rap fans have witnessed. Boosie beat the death penalty. Now his lawyers are working for Melly. And this is how crazy high profile cases are in the age of the internet. We have lawyers beefing with trolls on Instagram and Twitter. Like you can't make this shit up. The lawyer, no filter, just he did it. Just on Twitter. That's 2020 for you. You're certainly innocent until proven guilty, but that seems to be, to me, you know, my opinion, a despicable act of homicide, if not again, murder. Anyways, we're gonna get into all this, but before we do, check out my song of the day. This is Timo the Great. Let's go. Sorry, mama, but I like to tell. tell you how looney tunes this has gone we know melly probably won't get bond he'll be in jail until the trial starts and with Cortland henry free on house arrest the rumors online started circulating that he had snitched all the comments on the blogs instagram academics was he told he's got to be snitching and the fuel was added to the fire when double xl and dj vlad posted some fugazi fake news coming from Cortland Henry's lawyer who took to Twitter to basically say Melly fans are delusional and Melly's never getting out. Now all that would be cool and fine except that wasn't actually his lawyer. Those tweets are from the lawyer representing the family of the victims. So of course he's dunking on Melly any chance he gets, right? That's his job. Now if you actually pull up the court documents, we know he most definitely did not snitch. In fact, neither him nor Melly told on each other, right? They both stayed silent. And that's actually why the state is so pissed. 
because they've been trying for practically a year now to get him to turn on Melly. But these tactics didn't work and neither Melly or Corlin Henry flipped on each other. What's gonna be super interesting once the trial starts is how both sides played the relationship that Melly had with the two kids who were killed. Me and all my niggas, we had the same dream going up. Yeah, me my day on you got some haters just mad at the success, but now they see it, they just hate it, but they love it at the same time. So it's like both 50-50 and everybody. They love us and hate us. Like, they happy to see us. Rapper, that's what you want to be. Gonna go get a job at Wendy's. <laughs> you pull up any photos, video, whatever, these are clearly best friends. Melly, Sack Chaser, Juvie, and Bortland. Super tight. However, you probably also heard the rumors about Melly's mom being threatened by Sack Chaser. When we text messages from Sack Chaser threatening all her friends and all these people, like he's about this life. But I'm saying, like, who the fuck you ever robbed? Who the fuck you ever shot at? Oh, you threatened me with your little gun? I got big guns. Melly is my child. And he is gonna be great because he's talented. And by the way, she had Melly when she was just 14 years old. That's why she looks so young. But that's a video of Melly's mom taken from her Instagram that it sounds like she's talking about Sack Chaser. But a lot of people online are also saying that video clip was chopped up and taken out of context and that she's actually talking about Melly's stepdad. I don't know. The prosecution's gonna try and paint a couple pictures of Melly. Don't forget, they want the death penalty. So they're gonna argue that the killings were especially- Hey, what's going on? My name is Nate, lawyer slash YouTuber. And today I wanna talk about Cardi B again. And we're gonna actually just look up her case and look at what she's charged with and see how much time she can actually get. Because a lot of the Cardi B fans, I love you guys, thank you guys for watching, thanks for making comments, have been hammering me in the comments section saying that everything I'm showing you guys is fake news. So, it even got to one point where one fan was like, this is all fake, there's nothing about it. Then I actually said, here's the name, here's the link, go look it up. And they refused to look it up. So, just so we can all be on the same page. And because I've been challenged, it's time to provide that receipt. Let's go into the receipts. For those of you who don't know who Cardi B is and don't know who the people I'm talking about, check out this news clip. It'll get you caught up in a quick hot minute. Rapper Cardi B has been indicted on charges stemming from a melee at a Queen strip club. In April, Cardi B rejected a plea deal that would have included no jail time if she pleaded guilty to third-degree assault. Cardi B is accused of throwing items inside Angel's strip club in Flushing last August, injuring two bartenders, the 26-year-old due back in court next Tuesday. So our first stop is to the comments section. This is love me or let me leave. Uh-oh. And they edited. Now, this person says Cardi B is not facing 10 years. No way you're an attorney. Oh, no. So then I write back. Look it up yourself. Two felonies. See Cardi B's case, right? Defendant's name. Here's the link. Go check it out. Waterfalls come. I see nothing. I can't do anything. It's just like, oh, my God. Stop reporting false info. Can't see anything on the state's website. I put the link works for everyone else. So then we have some back and forth with other people. Now she's saying that she sees it or he or she or whatever's happening. So I started getting a couple of these comments. I started getting comments saying that, you know, there's no way she's getting any time and I'm just missing it. I'm, it's wrong. 
wrong, wrong, wrong. So I'm like, all right, let's do this. Let's just look it up ourselves, and I'll show you exactly where I'm getting my numbers from. First, so you guys can see, we are going to e-courts. Now, if you're in New York and you're arrested, you can look up the case here. You can look up Harvey Weinstein. You can look up anybody's case here on e-courts, and you go to this place called Web Crimes. Now, I've already pulled it up. Now, I've used Cardi B's name, um, which is her government name. And you can pull up the case right here, Queen Supreme Court. Now, this is a court that handles felonies, so there it is. And now, we look at her arrest information. So, this is the summary of her case. Defendant, her birth year, tells you, you know, what, what day she was arrested what the incident was, you know, all this great stuff. So now we can see what's going on. We can see her attorney, for instance, and her next appearance date, which is March 19th, 2020. So now on this side right here, you see where it says appearances. So now we can actually see when she's been in the court and what happened. So she's been to court all these times, all these times, you know, in front of this judge, that judge. The court reporter. Um, she's always been from the same judge. Now it's on for trial. So she's on for trial. So she was arraigned. I think she was arraigned on a misdemeanor. That she was arraigned on felony. So you, you can see it's all here. And her next trial date. Her trial date is 3-19-2020. So that is her next date, calendared for next week. Okay, so this is the part, this is the part where I think people are getting confused on, so let's just go into it. It all, it is the charges. Here are the charges. Now, the first one, as you can see here, is a violation. This is harassment in the second degree. That's like a parking ticket. It's nothing. You know, nobody serves any jail in time for violations here in New York. It's a laugher, right? So the first two counts of violations. Now, throw them away. They're really worth nothing. Again, violations are like parking tickets. Class A misdemeanor is something interesting. Because a Class A misdemeanor, that means that you could spend up to... 364 days in jail. You can't spend a year in jail because if you spend a year, it has to be a felony and you have to be indicted for that. So, misdemeanors, you can spend up to a year in jail. Cardi's being charged with the misdemeanor, a misdemeanor of conspiracy. So, she can spend up to a year in jail, 364 days. Now, is she going to get that for any of these charges? Probably not. It all depends on her criminal history. It's a lot of factors that go into sentencing. But usually I tell you the BNC doesn't quite work in the same way. So again, we're going to go to our principal training advisor, Rusty Burris, who is going to give us a brief introduction as to the mechanics necessary to group counts under A, B, or C. If counts group under rules A, B, or C, you apply the guidelines separately to get an offense level for each count. And then you use the highest offense level. Now let me give you some examples and that will explain what this slide is, is saying to you. I have two counts of conviction. Uh, and I've looked these counts up in my statutory index and I see the guideline that's used for each of those and it turns out that I didn't group them under Rule D. So I know I didn't treat them as a composite harm by applying the guidelines one time for both of those counts. But maybe they're going to group under Rules A, B, or C. Now for count one, I looked in statutory index, I know which guideline I'm using. I apply the Chapter 2 guideline. I apply the Chapter 3 adjustments all the way down to obstruction. Now, what that means, and you've looked at the worksheet, obstruction is at the bottom of the worksheet A. In other words, I've applied the worksheet A for count one. Now, for count two, 
I've done the same thing. I've looked at the statutory index and gone back to the Chapter 2 guideline and applied Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. And at the bottom of that worksheet A, I've got a number for that count as well. That number is called the adjusted offense level. So I have an adjusted offense level for each of those counts. What I'm going to do now is I've come up with that number, and now I'm going to go through this process to decide how am I going to group these counts. Do they group under rules A, B, or C? As you can see, the operation or the mechanics, if you will, for grouping pursuant to rules A, B, and C is different than the rule for grouping at rule D, which is one guideline, one time. Let's look just a little bit more closely at the distinction between grouping at rules A, B, and C and grouping at rule D. If you have counts that group pursuant to rules A, B, or C under 3D 1.2, what you're going to do is apply the guidelines separately in order to get an offense level for each count of conviction. Then what you're going to do is use the highest offense level for the group. In other words, you look at all of the counts of conviction that you have, determining your offense level for each count separately, and whichever produces the highest offense level, that's going to be the offense level for the grouping of those counts under rules A, B, or C. And again, we're going to deviate just a little bit from the order of the book, and we are going to talk about grouping under Rule C first. And the reason is that sometimes this rule has caused some confusion for people who are applying the guidelines because it is a little bit complex. So what we're going to start off with is looking at the exact language that's contained in 3D1.2C. What 3D1.2C says is that when one of the counts embodies conduct that is treated as a specific offense characteristic in or other adjustment to the guideline applicable to another of the counts. What that means is that when you are applying the guidelines, if in one of your counts a specific offense characteristic or a Chapter 3 adjustment to that count embodies the conduct of the other count of conviction, those counts are deemed to represent a single composite harm and therefore would be groupable under 3D1.2C. One thing I want to point out, uh, as if you have noticed, is that that exact language says that you need a specific offense characteristic or other adjustment to. This grouping under this subsection would not include if a base offense level would embody the conduct or if a cross-reference would embody that conduct. You are looking specifically at a specific offense characteristic or a Chapter 3 adjustment to make that determination as to whether the conduct of the other count is embodied by that adjustment. So what we're going to do now is turn back to our fact patterns to help illustrate the analysis that goes on when you're grouping under Rule C. So here we go. Fact pattern 3. We have a defendant who is convicted in count one of drug trafficking, a violation of uh, Title 21, United States Code, Section 841. And in count two, we have the defendant convicted of bribery. Uh, the corresponding guideline is 2C1.1. When we applied 2D1.1, there was an increase to the offense level that was given pursuant to 3C1.1, obstruction. And that offense level under 2D1.1 for count 1 was determined to be an offense level of 16, which does include that obstruction adjustment. The offense level for count 2, the bribery offense, is an offense level of 20. Let's talk a little bit about the analysis for this fact pattern. Okay, this is a good fact pattern to illustrate one of the questions that... Remorse now. 
even though they may want to do it. In, in, in your position of sitting on the bench, my question is, if somebody has pleaded not guilty and went through a trial, and I know that it's a very small percentage in your courtroom, can that person still do something to make amends and to reconcile and say, I was wrong, I wish I got this message sooner, I didn't, or does that come across to you less plausible? Yeah, and I think we've got a whole variety of folks that kind of fit into that equation, right? And I've had a trial where the guy said, I'm guilty for selling drugs, but that gun ain't mine. And so going into trial on that case by saying, I'm guilty of the drugs, I'm not guilty of the gun, then he's lost nothing in, in the credibility standpoint. There's other folks that maybe truly are innocent. And then they will have not lost anything in that situation. And I, you know, I pray to God that we don't convict innocent people. But I know that that does. If it happens once, it happens too much. And then there's other folks that are not at that point, and maybe you are at, the, at that stage or not, where you can't own up to it. Um, I think at any point, when somebody owns up to a problem, that's, that's better than none. If, if the person's truly guilty, if that's what we're talking about, then owning up at any time, usually it's 90 days or more between a conviction or a change of plea and sentencing, um, that's not that long of time. But then in other situations, it's long enough to figure out, I screwed up, I made a mistake, I've done something wrong here, and I'm committed to improving it. And I think most judges are really good about judging if that's a genuine apology and a genuine attempt to fix it versus I'm trying to shave a few years off my sentence. And I would agree that it's never too early and it's never too late to begin working toward a better life and working toward a, an opportunity to reconcile with society and particularly victims. What thoughts do you have on individuals who really come clean during the pre-sentence investigation report, providing a full written narrative to the probation officer that doesn't excuse their misconduct, but rather shows the influences that led that person there. Does that, when you see that at the very earliest stage, such as the pre-sentence investigation report, does that help your assessment or your deliberations over what an appropriate and fair sentence is? Yeah, it definitely does. I think it helps for a public defender or CJA counsel to be able to cite to the PSR to say, this is how it got there. You know, this person's father was never in their life. This person sold drugs at this point to get this. This person did these things and that tells the story and puts it all in context. So what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, the sentencing guidelines have no reflection of humanity. It's a grid, it's a chart. And I put you on X, Y chart. On the other hand, the 3553 factors, that statute mandates I put a human face on the individual standing in front of me. And so if there's, if there's things in the PSR that the lawyer can cite to and that the defendant can cite to and talk about it, you're creating your own evidence at that point for good or for bad, you're telling your PSR writer in the probation office, here's everything you need to know about me and how I got here. Um, that That is good advocacy, if nothing else. It sounds like you're reiterating what, what, I, what I heard you say at the beginning of this interview and that what Sean and I are always telling people who are reading our materials is that the most important 
person in the sentencing hearing is the defendant himself. He shouldn't outsource all of his remorse to the defense attorney, but rather should make the investment of time and energy to help the judge see that individual for who he is and what influences led him there. Uh, am I correct in understanding that's what you're telling us? You're correct. And I may backpedal a little bit because the lawyer can help put that together, right? And I, at least in my district, and I can't speak to anybody else's, I have a lot of respect for a public defender's office and some of our frequent flyers on the CJA panel. Um, we appoint those people. We're used to seeing them. We've developed a sense of respect. And a pardon is a government-issued forgiveness of a crime committed here in the state of Nevada. A pardon does not erase a criminal conviction. Only a record seal does that. But it can help you to restore your civil rights and your right to possess a firearm. In short, a pardon forgives but does not forget. The benefits of having a pardon here in Nevada for a past criminal conviction include the following. It would remove all legal disabilities resulting from a criminal conviction. Uh, it would be the only way for you to get your gun rights restored. If you receive a pardon, your prior conviction could not be used to impeach you if you testify in a criminal case. If you're looking for a job, although it doesn't erase your conviction, you can attach a pardon to a job application, which would likely remove any hindrance to getting employment. If you're not a citizen and you're having immigration issues, it will likely prevent you from being deported or denied naturalization and can restore your right to vote, your right to hold office, and your right to serve on a jury. Note, a pardon does not do any of the following. It does not overturn, seal, or expunge a judgment of conviction. There's a separate process for doing that called a record seal here in the state of Nevada. It does not relieve the duty of a sex offender to register, and it does not guarantee that an employer will hire you if you have a criminal record. Prosecutor painted a picture of Campbell as a violent felon, not a well-intentioned media figure. He has over 20 arrests and two felony convictions, but his attorney says he put those problems in his past and is now out to help others. I think um, what's made Daryl and people know him as Taxstone so popular is that he's able to reach audiences that traditionally people can't. At Montgomery's request, the judge approved a bail package for half a million dollars that also includes house arrest. As for Troy Ave, he remains free on bail on attempted murder and weapons possession charges. In lower Manhattan, I'm Lisa Evers, Fox 5 News.